Good morning, great people. It's good to see you. I have a few quick uh, announcements before I hand over to the uh, special guest who's going to be preaching today. One, uh, Vanessa forgot to mention to you, the lady who just spoke, wasn't that phenomenal? Uh, Vanessa forgot to tell you that since then she's become a life coach who helps other people navigate their mountains. And I just want to honor you. You're so incredible. Come on. Um, the next one is uh, Pastor Simon and Pastor Roger are in Cape Town uh, celebrating James's wedding, so that's why they're not here. But we, <laughs> they, they're having a great time, but we're going to have a better time because of who's going to preach. Um, um, oh, before I forget, no, you're not depressed. It's just hot, okay? That's, how, that's what you're feeling. Those of you are going, am I losing it? No, no, no. It's just hot. The reason... Is that the preacher who preached the first service was preaching? It was so good, first service. Electricity went out and a few things uh, burst, and so now the aircon's not working. Um, and so hopefully the Lord will give us uh, some grace over the service. But we're gonna try and open the doors and have some fans to help you during the service. So I do wanna apologize for that. Uh, Dr. Brennan Belsham is gonna be sharing the message. He is a father in the house, uh, he needs no introduction. But I did want to introduce the message by encouraging you to have a particular posture. I listened to this message in the first service and I, I don't mix my words when I say this. Arguably the top five messages I've heard this whole year. The practicality, the applying, the word, and the, and the reality of what we go through in our souls. What you are going to be listening to, to this morning is critical, not just for you, but for the person you are called to help. And so the posture I want all of us to take is you're on a couch. How many of you like free therapy sessions? Praise Jesus. I need one every single day. All right. So this is going to be a free one. One condition, take out your notepads, be positioned to listen, to learn, not just for yourself, but for people that God is calling you to. Can you give a warm round of applause for Dr. Brandon Belshaw? I think it's on. Morning, church. If you've got your Bible, please turn to Matthew chapter 26. Before we kick off uh, and before I read the, that passage, I'd like to just set the scene briefly in terms of what's happening here. Um, Jesus has just been betrayed by Judas, and he's been handed over to the Jewish authorities and everyone's waiting around anxiously, wondering what's going to happen next. So let's read from uh, Matthew chapter 26 and from verse 69, and we're going to cross over into Matthew 27 as well. Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said. But he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway, where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, This fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again, with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, Surely you are one of them. Your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. 
and he went outside and wept bitterly. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plan how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they said. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. Not the kind of scripture you're going to stick on your bathroom mirror. (laughs) But folks, here we have juxtaposed within a few short verses two very divergent stories. After all, both Judas and Simon Peter were chosen by Jesus. They lived with him. They listened to him. They walked with him. Both betrayed him. Yet their outcomes were so different. For Judas, suicide. For Peter, ultimate reinstatement. He became the rock on which the church was built. Why were their outcomes so different? Hopefully in the course of the next little while, we're going to understand a few of the answers. But first, let's just dive into this terrible triad of anxiety, depression, and suicide. And although it's a lot to to cover in a short space of time, it does make sense to cover them together because they go together, and chronologically they often go together. As a child psychiatrist, one of the earliest forms of pathology we see is anxiety. That's what shows up first in development, often as young as three or four years old. If it's not dealt with, it can lead to what we call clinical depression. And of course, if that's not dealt with, it can lead to suicide. Now, there are independent factors that can influence all three of those, as we will learn about just now. But there there is a progression that happens here, and that's why it's so important to recognize these conditions, especially in young children. Now, when we talk about anxiety and depression, it's very important to stress that a certain level of anxiety, stress if you like, is normal. And to prepare for this message this morning, I would have had to have some anxiety to galvanize me to do some preparation. And that's okay, that that helps my functioning up to a point, but When anxiety starts to get excessive, as you can see from that U-shaped curve, it starts to impact on our functioning, and we start to decline in our productivity or our daily functioning. And it's at that point, if you like, to the right-hand side of that vertical line, that we start to talk about clinical conditions such as anxiety disorders. And we don't have time to to deal with this in too much detail, but just to share with you, anxiety is a very broad concept, and anxiety disorders can look very different depending on the kind of condition we're dealing with. So again, early on in development, one of the first kinds of anxiety we see is so-called separation anxiety disorder. Now, let me just stress that it's normal for an 18-month-old child to have separation anxiety from from their mom. 
That's completely normal. But when you get to the age of six or seven, you should be able to separate from your parents. And if you can't, and some of these kids can't even get to school because they're too nervous of separating from their, from their parents, then we start to talk about a condition called separation anxiety disorder. Generalized anxiety disorder is someone who just worries about everything. It's the person, the child, who's got 90% for their last three tests, but they're worried they're going to fail this one. It's the child who worries that their parents are going to run out of petrol on the way to church. Things that kids shouldn't be thinking about. And of course, as adults, we can have similar kinds of anxieties. Then social phobia is a condition where one is extremely nervous of being embarrassed or scrutinized in front of other people. So someone with social phobia would not be able to do what I'm doing now. Unless they were taking lots of medication, but I, I won't get into that just yet. Um, it's a child who won't even speak to their teacher in class because they're nervous of saying something wrong or being embarrassed. Then panic disorder, if anyone's had a panic attack, it's a horrible, horrible experience. It's a sudden burst of severe anxiety, which is associated with heart palpitations and all kinds of physical symptoms, shortness of breath, being shaky. And it's a, it's a condition in which you think you're going to die. You think you're having a heart attack. You think you're going crazy. And it's a massive release of noradrenaline in the brain, which gives you these kinds of symptoms. And then obsessive-compulsive disorder is a condition where you have recurring intrusive thoughts that you struggle to get out of your head. And it's associated with various rituals. So, for example, it might be a person who has a fear of germs and a fear of getting contaminated if they handle a door handle or if they shake someone's hand. And they have to go wash their hands over and over again in case they're going to catch a germ or get an illness. And they can do it to such an extent that their hands become chapped and actually start to bleed because they're just so dry from all the excessive hand washing. And that's just one example of obsessive compulsive disorder. And then post-traumatic stress disorder, sadly too common in our, uh, in our society, is where someone's been exposed to a life-threatening trauma. So they've been hijacked, or they've watched someone be killed in front of them, or they themselves have been held up at gunpoint. You know, these are these are commonplace in our city, but these are potential roots for what we call post-traumatic stress disorder, where a person experiences re-experiencing flashbacks of that event, may not be able to sleep, and may avoid certain places and activities because of that trauma. But what's common to all anxiety disorders are a few points. They typically begin in childhood. They're often associated with horrible thoughts, what we call catastrophic thinking, assuming the worst-case scenario. So it's a child who thinks that their parents are going to run out of petrol. It's a child who thinks that because their mom's a few minutes late to pick them up from school, that she's been in a car crash. And, and again, these kinds of catastrophic thoughts can occur in adults with anxiety disorders. Often they're physical symptoms. In fact, it's especially common in children who are anxious to experience tummy aches for no obvious reason, headaches for no obvious reason. And it's very common in 
my kind of work to see a child who's perhaps had three scans, visited two pediatricians and a GP, and nothing's wrong with them medically, but it's because their physical symptoms have their roots in psychological uh, conditions such as anxiety. And for us to call it a disorder, there must be impairment in functioning. And so that might avoid, involve avoidance behavior, a child who can't get to school, a person who's avoiding all social contact because they're overly nervous with people. There's often sleep disturbance. It impacts on school performance for a child who's at school, or work performance for adults. And what we mustn't forget, and again, especially with children, is the extreme subjective distress that these conditions are associated with. We must listen to what kids tell us. And as adults, we must listen to what those around us are telling us. And we must be prepared to share. Because there's so much distress associated with these conditions that people don't always see on the outside. And very importantly with anxiety disorders, they're associated with negative long-term outcomes. Untreated, the, the people who have anxiety disorders are at risk for depression, as mentioned earlier, and a whole lot of other negative outcomes if it's not properly addressed. Let's move on to depression. And again, as for anxiety, I must stress that it's normal for all of us to, be, to get sad from time to time to get demoralized, to get disheartened. It may even be adaptive. It may be pointing us to something that we need to address in our lives. I love this quote by C.S. Lewis, who's, who talks about God whispering to us in our pleasures, speaking to us in our conscience, but shouting to us in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So sometimes painful emotions are pointing us to something important. But sometimes, it's a medical condition. And that's what we, what we refer to as major depressive disorder, or what will more colloquially be known as clinical depression. And it's a condition where there is ongoing depressed mood, but that mood may also be irritable. It's a very important point to make, is that irritability counts as a depressive symptom as much as sadness. And with that, a reduced interest or enjoyment in activities that perhaps used to be enjoyable. One loses the pleasure and passion for different things in life. As well as a number of other symptoms, one doesn't have to show all of them to have the diagnosis, but one needs to have at least four of these. Again, cognitive symptoms, battling to concentrate, reduced energy levels, sleep disturbance, and that could be increased sleep or decreased sleep. Again, appetite decreased or increased with weight loss or excessive weight gain. A feeling of being agitated, of being unable to settle down, or of being overly slowed up in one's thinking and in one's movements. And very importantly, these cognitive symptoms of feeling worthless, feeling guilty, feeling like it's your fault, which of course spiritually doesn't help. And then thoughts of death, very common in someone who's depressed, even suicidal thinking and potential suicidal behavior. For it to be counted as a disorder, there must be at least two weeks of these symptoms. It can't just be one day of feeling like that. 
And as for anxiety, it causes significant impairment, whether that's someone who's at school, someone who's at work, in one's relationships, there's functional impairment associated with it. Now, when we think about the causes of depression, when I was training as a psychiatrist, we learned about the so-called biopsychosocial model. And folks, if you remember one thing of what I'm saying this morning, please remember this, that the causes of depression are complex, and there are several different domains that could be involved in any given person who has this condition. Also, do you notice how these circles overlap? So that there may be more than one, there may be all three of these domains. We can't get into all of them, but biological factors are known to be potential causes of depression. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, you would have heard Pastor Nicola sharing openly about how she had a chronic pain condition which led to depression and led to even suicidal thoughts. Various other physical and biological causes of depression. Psychologically, and I've added in here the spiritual domain as well. I was taught in a fairly secular environment at university and one sort of discounted the spiritual side, but I link these two together because I think they so commonly overlap with one another. But folks, anxiety, as we've just learned, is a risk factor for depression. So is chronic anger. One of the theories of depression is that it's anger turned inwards, anger that hasn't been properly processed, and linked to that, unforgiveness, a potent, potent spiritual antecedent of depression. And then in the social domain, in young children who haven't had proper attachment experiences with their primary caregivers, we know that that's a risk factor for depression. And that's in the first 100 days of life. Bereavement, we heard Vanessa sharing about a bereavement and how that triggered a depressive-like condition in her. Abuse, sexual or physical abuse, sadly too common in our society. And then loneliness or being disconnected is a risk factor for depression. And folks, what I want to stress this morning also is that depression is a medical condition associated with very real brain changes. And without wanting to turn you all into neuroscientists, I want to just stress to you that there are parts of the brain, and I've highlighted three there, the thalamus, the hippocampus, and the amygdala, which form part of the so-called limbic system of the brain, which is the system of interconnected brain areas that's responsible for our emotions and for the regulation of our emotions, which are abnormal in people with depression. There are also chemical abnormalities involving so-called neurotransmitters like serotonin, noradrenaline, dopamine, and more, in, more recently, something called brain-derived growth factor, and then there are also functional abnormalities of the brain. What you're seeing here is a so-called PET scan of the brain. And what that does is it images the brain in real time, looking at the functional uh, use of glucose, the consumption of glucose in the brain, as well as things like blood flow and oxygenation. And what that's showing you is the difference between a depressed and a non-depressed brain. And as you can see, how understimulated and underactive 
that depressed brain is when one actually images it in real time. These are clear-cut medical changes that occur in someone who's depressed, however it got to that point. Now, before we go any further, when we talk about these medical aspects of anxiety and depression, many people you accuse people who've had these conditions of using it as an excuse. You're just saying that because you don't want to come to work. You're just saying that because you, you don't want to write this exam. And what I found very helpful, a talk I was at, at a conference some years ago by a Jewish psychiatrist, and he spoke about the difference between explanations and excuses. Explanations shed light on a problem. Excuses obscure it. Explanations guide and facilitate healthy change. It's a departure point for healthy change. Excuses obstruct healthy change. But critically, explanations keep the ownership of the problem with the person who has it, whereas excuses deflect it, push it away to someone else. I'm sure you've all had people in your lives, perhaps you've been ministering to them, who constantly want to make it your problem. And, that, and that's not healthy. There has to be a tension between carrying one another's burdens, which is what we're supposed to do, but not letting that burden become exclusively yours. That person has to still own the problem. And before we dive further into suicide, folks, I want to just share with you the difference between a genuine suicide attempt and a so-called parasuicide. Not all suicides are created equal. Whatever that means. <laughs> but if your child threatens to kill themselves because you won't buy them a new pair of shoes, that's not a genuine suicidal thought or attempt. Okay, that's manipulation. And, and, and there is a difference. And we can sometimes run into trouble because that difference can sometimes be a bit blurred. But I just want to stress that point, uh, that every suicidal threat does not mean you have to admit that person to hospital. But what about this thorny issue? Is suicide morally excusable? After all, we talk about everything with a side. Patricide, infanticide, genocide, suicide. It's kind of got a judgmental flavor to it, doesn't it? That may not be correct. A lot of my colleagues who speak about suicide rather use the term, a person died from suicide, rather than committed suicide. And that may be helpful. It may be helpful, especially for people who have these genuine conditions that have led to such an outcome. But folks, one thing's for sure, suicide is never God's will nor is feeling suicidal. And I think, hopefully, we can all agree on that. And when I think about suicide, I think about it as a final end point of a journey with perhaps a few decision points along the way. And please forgive this complicated slide, but I, in coming back to the suicide of Judas, I wonder whether there were some key decisions he made along the way that increased his vulnerability for this outcome. Right at the beginning, we, we learn in one of the Gospels that he was someone who stole from the coffers. Remember when Jesus was anointed with the expensive perfume? He was the one who said, no, you should have sold 
sold the perfume and given the money to the poor. And I can't remember, it could have been John, said that, no, no, he didn't say that because he was worried about the poor. He said it because he was worried about the money. Anyway, he had a money issue, folks. And I think that made it more likely for him to betray Jesus for money. Of course, Satan entered him. That's what we learn in Luke 22. But maybe the decision he made more proximal to that event made it more likely for Satan to enter him. He could have decided not to at any point along the way, but he decided to. Even right at the end, after he'd betrayed Jesus, he could have looked for forgiveness from Jesus, but he didn't. And we know what happened next. Now, I don't want to paint every suicide along this particular progression because that's not the case. You, there might be very different circumstances where there's severe genetic vulnerability, perhaps terrible life circumstances, sexual abuse, physical abuse, bereavement, that lead to mental illness that in turn may lead to suicide. But folks, I would argue that even in that less spiritual trajectory, there are decision points along the way that we can make and that we can encourage other people to make to prevent that progression of events. And I want to spend the next bit talking about some of those important decisions. In fact, four important decisions that we can all make. And the first is that we need to decide to face the facts. We need to know what we're dealing with we need to know what's in our families. Denial, folks, is unhelpful. I love this um, passage in Romans which speaks about Abraham when he'd been given the promise of a child in his old age. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. So do you see the tension between seeing it as it is, not denying it, but still having faith in parallel with that? Here's a bit of a snapshot of my genogram. I'm the guy there with the double, the double square at the bottom. As you can see, there's nothing wrong with me. <laughs> no, that's not actually true, as I'll share a little bit later. But there's some stuff in my family. There's anxiety, there's ADHD, there's obesity, there's alcoholism. My paternal granny, bless her, had lots of husbands. But that affected my dad. It affected his attachment. It affected his upbringing. But it helps me to understand a lot. It also makes me very conscious of some of the decisions I have to make for myself, but also in, as a parent and in my marriage to not let that carry on. There may even be a suicide in my family, but it's shrouded in secrecy, so nobody really knows. I don't think that's helpful. I think we need to know. But folks, I want to stress this point, that our outcomes are not inextricably linked to our DNA. A few years ago, we used to believe this in the field of genetics, that gene A leads to outcome A, and that's it. But we now know through a process known as epigenetics that 
the environment actually affects our DNA and can activate or deactivate certain risk genes. So you might have a, vul a vulnerability gene for a certain condition, such as depression, but depending on what happens to you in your life, and indeed some choices you might make, that gene can be what we call methylated, it's a chemical process, and hence silenced, leading to a very different outcome. And I want to encourage you with that, that whatever is in your family doesn't need to be your destiny. And why I love this science is because it dovetails perfectly with what God can do and does do across generations. The second decision we need to make, folks, is to live wisely. There are lots of things we can do to minimize anxiety and depressive symptoms, such as regular cardiovascular exercise, such as getting enough rest and taking Sabbath time, such as eating and drinking responsibly, such as managing our digital consumption. We know that excessive screen time is linked to depression or, or aggravates depression and anxiety. With depression, it's more gaming and, and, and more of a, what, what boys and males tend to do. With anxiety, it's more social media and what girls and women tend to do more. We need to manage our relationships, our key relationships, such as our marriages and our parenting. And folks, the third decision we need to make is where necessary, get help, get professional assistance. That might take the form of an admission to hospital. And folks, psychiatric hospitals aren't anymore what you saw in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. They've actually got better and they're humane places where you get proper treatment. Someone who's severely suicidal, who can't get out of bed, that might be the context in which they need to get better. And if medication is required, then we need to do that too. These medications, antidepressant medications, address the chemical abnormalities I spoke about earlier. But it's a stumbling block for many Christians because they think, my faith has failed, so I have to resort to second best. And this shame about it often leads to silence. And silence is the last thing we need in dealing with this problem. I firmly believe that God uses medical treatment as part of his overall holistic healing plan for us. It's not a second-rate healing. I find this question helpful because I do think there's an inappropriate use of medication. And I see this in clinical practice where somebody is looking to numb feelings that need to be dealt with in another way. So, for example, there might be spiritual or relational roots to one's painful feelings. Unforgiveness, let's use that example. We need to deal with that at that level. If we're using medicine just to numb that, to sweep it under the carpet, then that's unhelpful. But if we're using medicine as part of a holistic, prayerfully considered treatment plan then I think that's a different story. Sometimes that professional assistance needs to involve psychotherapy with a, with a psychologist or counseling. And there's a very well-researched type of therapy which is called cognitive behavioral therapy, whereby the goal of the therapy is to identify 
and then challenge dysfunctional thoughts or beliefs that one has about oneself or about the world or about the future. And why I really love this is because it, again, resonates perfectly with what we learn in Scripture about demolishing arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and taking captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Now, a therapist who works with CBT may not be a Christian and may not bring in the Christ bit, but there's value in identifying the thoughts we carry around with us or beliefs we carry around with us that are unhelpful to us and can be at the root of mental illness. If any of you can, I would strongly urge you to look up this. It's a TED Talk, actually, by a Zimbabwean psychiatrist by the name of Dr. Dixon Chibanda. Because when we talk about getting professional help, it's one thing to say that, but it's quite another thing to access it. Firstly, because of expense, and secondly, because of the availability of resources, especially in Africa. Dr. Chibanda is one of eight psychiatrists in Zimbabwe, serving a population of 16 or so million. And what he did was he has trained up grannies in the community with a basic level of counseling skills, such as listening empathically when somebody comes to them with a problem. And, and it's, it, it happens on a bench, on a bench in the park or somewhere in the community. Somebody who's struggling with something might get a referral letter from the clinic sister outlining the problem, and that person with the problem will go and find the granny, give them the letter, and then they have a session, a therapy session. And this program has been so successful that it's reduced the incidence of depression in the areas where it's been rolled out. And it's been rolled out to other parts of Africa, and even the United States are, is adopting this. So getting professional assistance doesn't have to be the sole preserve of a few highly trained, highly expensive professionals. And folks, on the home straight now, I want to stress the importance of deciding to stay connected. Now, this connection is firstly to God and secondly to each other. And I must stress that we need to be in the habit of doing this. Because if we decide to do it only when we're in crisis, it's actually much harder to do. But if we're in the habit of doing it, if that's how we operate, we stay connected to God and we stay connected to each other, then when crisis hits, we go through storms of life, it's easier to just continue doing what we're doing and get the support that we need. And bringing it right back to our story of Peter and Judas, I strongly believe, and I'm, I know I'm speculating to some extent, but that what helped Peter was his connection, firstly to God and secondly to his fellow disciples. I wonder whether in those days after the betrayal, where he thought that Jesus was dead, because he hadn't shown himself to them yet, he 
held on to this word that Jesus had spoken to him earlier in their journey, where Jesus had said, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I wonder if he held on to that and repeated that to himself a few times. I wonder if he also remembered Jesus' prayer for him, where Jesus said to him, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. I wonder if he remembered that and held on to that. I wonder if Judas couldn't or didn't. If we think about what happened to Judas, he didn't go back to the disciples. He didn't go back to Jesus. He went to the high priests, threw the money in, and that was the end. Something else that Peter did, perhaps I'm, I'm reading between the lines, but if we go to John chapter 21, we, we find this scene. Simon, Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. Where was he? He was in community. He was with the brothers that he'd walked with. I don't know where he was spiritually. I, I don't know what was going on in him at that time. But he was found in community. He was found with his brothers. And of course, that story goes on wonderfully, where Jesus reinstates Peter. And he does, in fact, become the rock on which the church of Christ is built. So, folks, my challenge to us this morning is to stay connected, to stay connected to God and to stay connected to each other, and to encourage those who we may be ministering to to stay connected. It might be the most important advice that we can give them. Can I pray for us? Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we thank you for your truth which sets us free. I ask, Lord, for those who may be suffering from severe anxiety, from clinical depression, from suicidal thoughts even, Lord, that you will bring healing and restoration according to your perfect will, Lord Jesus. Help us, Lord, to remain connected to you and to others even in our darkest times. I also pray, Lord, for those of us who are carrying others' burdens, Lord, that you would give us the grace to be what they need us to be. Lord, to invite people in a non-judgmental way onto our bench and listen to them empathically and thereby be agents of healing. For I ask these things in your precious name. Amen.